morning and welcome to the second to last week of the Lord's Prayer. Oh man, I know, but you know what? We're not done with the Lord's Prayer. We're just done teaching on the Lord's Prayer for now, for now, right? For now. And we are on Deliver Us From Evil. Deliver, yes, Lord, deliver us from evil. So we're just going to jump right in to the message today. There is a lot that I have. So a couple of uh, preliminary thoughts here. One is this is an overview message. There are people who have given their entire lives to spiritual warfare and, and all that that entails. And I am not going to pretend for a second that this message is exhaustive. This is an overview And I hope that this will be an overview that challenges, at least in part, the way that we think and the way that we interact and participate against evil. So this is an overview. This is not exhaustive. There's going to be a lot of things that I will not say and scriptures that will come to your mind and say, well, I can't believe you didn't reference that. That's because there's about 400 of them, okay? So unless y'all want to be here until Monday at lunch, we're going to be content with an overview, right? That's good. All right, so when we talk about deliver us from evil, when Jesus references deliver us from evil, there are three ways that we are praying this all at the same time. The first thing that we are praying for is the ultimate deliverance, that one day we will be with Jesus and that all sin and death and pain and suffering, all of those things will be extinguished and totally swallowed up and they will not be in our midst anymore. There is a part of this prayer where that is what we are praying for. We're saying, come Lord Jesus, come, come, come to us, deliver us ultimately out of the sin and the darkness and the evil that we so often get mingled up with. So that is one way that we pray. Number two, we pray for deliverance from situations. About a third of the Psalms are King David crying out to be delivered from people, delivered from oppression, delivered from Saul who is trying to to hunt him down and kill him. So there is this temporality to, God, deliver me from this situation, these people, this whatever. So those are the first two. And the third one where I'd like to spend most of our time, and the one that we probably look over the most, is deliver us from participating with and colluding with evil. Deliver us as the people of God who are called to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ in the earth. Deliver us from the ways that we so subtly get entwined with evil. Deliver us. So real quick, let's just break down this phrase word by word. Deliver implies that there is a crisis. It reminds us that we as a people are in a cosmic struggle that we are at the mercy of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? Amen, church? Amen. Hey, now listen, real quick, real quick, okay. I don't know what Sadron did last week to elicit all of that participation, but I would like to draw on that just a little bit. Didn't he do such an awesome job? Man, good work, brother. Okay. We are at the mercy of our loving Father to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That is implicit in the word deliver, right? 
You're not crying out for deliverance if you can do it yourself. Deliver us, oh, I love this, implies that we are in this together. We've, I've mentioned this the last three times, I believe, that I spoke, uh, that when we pray this prayer, that we are acknowledging that we have traded in our independence for interdependence. That when we enter into the family of God, that we are laying down our independent rights and we are taking up interdependence. What does that mean? That means that we recognize as a people that we are being saved as a people, that what I do affects my brothers and sisters, and that what they do affects me. So I may not be in a moment of needing deliverance, but my brother or sister is, and I am called to pray this prayer with them, right? So deliver us from evil. Simple acknowledgement that evil is real. Believe it or not, and I know that this is certainly not Antioch Church, there, there is actually a large population of the Christian faith that that barely gives a nod to evil. And I don't want to spend much time here because I, I don't feel like that's where most of us are. But I, let me just tell you, e- evil is real. It's a real force. The nature of evil is not something that we fully understand, but to know that it exists is imperative as a believer. As someone who is fighting for yourself and for your brothers and sisters in this kingdom walk, we have to recognize that there is active opposition to us. So what is evil? What is evil? Here, I'm going to give you a technical definition and then a working definition, okay? The technical definition, evil is the force that is anti-creation and anti-life. The force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world and his image-bearing human creatures. And I want to hone in on this this phrase here of it's, it's all that opposes life and it seeks to deface and to destroy. So there is a part of the work of the enemy that ultimately his way would be to destroy, to eliminate the goodness of God as represented in this earth. And he does sometimes have success doing that, and he certainly tries to do that. What he also tries to do is to deface, to twist the appearance of. So to take things that are good, take things that are a good expression of our loving Father, and make them appear otherwise. They are both parts of the way that evil works against the Lord. So the working definition here is evil is simply all that opposes the fullness of life that God has designed for us to have. Evil is all that opposes the goodness of life. So a couple of things that evil is not, and I think that it is important that, we, that I address some of these Because as the people of God, it's easy for us to get riled up and excited about opposing evil. And it's important that we understand what we are and are not coming up against. So number one, evil is not something to be understood. It is a force to be opposed. Okay? The Bible gives very, very little talk to explaining evil. Where did 
it come from? We have nods to that, but there's really nothing sufficient. Where did it come from? How long will it be here? What are the limits that evil has in its interactions with humanity? And the list of questions, philosophical questions, goes on and on and on. The Bible doesn't really seem to be interested in answering many of those questions. So the book of Job is a really unique book where we see perhaps the clearest place in Scripture where God, the enemy, and man are, are engaging in a type of spiritual conflict. And what we see in Job is toward the end of the book, Job asks questions of the nature of his persecution directly to God. And you know what God does? He doesn't even address his questions. And on some levels, that is discouraging. And I don't think that it is wrong for us to want to know and to ask and to wrestle. But at some point, we have to be content to do what Scripture does lay out for us to do, and that is to oppose and resist in the face of not having all of the questions answered. So evil is not something to be understood. It is a force to be opposed. Okay, number two, evil is not a problem to be solved. Evil is not a problem to be solved. Okay, so here's a couple of blanket statements. One, if it were, we couldn't do it. <laughs> Two, in, in many senses, it has been solved by Jesus on the cross and resurrection. And so back to the, the previous point, one of the questions is, well, if, if Jesus defeated death through death, then why are we still wrestling with the effects of evil in our midst? And just as I said a moment ago, evil is not one of these things that we can understand. It is a force to be opposed. But also, it is not a problem to be solved. And why is that dangerous for us? It's dangerous for us because point number three is that evil is not a person or people group. When we think that evil is a problem to be solved, the easiest line for us to draw is that certain people or certain people groups are evil. And if we can extinguish those people or those people groups, then the problem of evil is solved. Okay, This is essentially the history of the world, is the history of war, which is the history of one people group conquering another for one of two reasons almost every time. Greed, or they think that the other people group is evil almost every time. Now, that's as far as I'm going to go into, into that. But the point is that we are so quick to draw lines between us and them, and they are evil explicitly, and I am good explicitly. And especially as Western Americans, we are so prone to this. We are prone to this, okay? And I want to draw, you know, big massive pictures from this, but we have to be aware that the tendency of the way that we think is to think we know the best way to do things and that we are good and they are evil. So I have this quote that I think is brilliant and highly convicting, so prepare yourselves. The line between good and evil is never simply between us and them. The line between good and evil runs through each one of us. Okay? The potential for evil is in all of us. The potential for evil. Every one of us has the potential to make sinful decisions, to in a moment partner with the work of evil. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that is humbling. 
so humbling. And, and if I had to uh, present a goal, a single word goal for this, for this message, it would be the word humility. My prayer would be that at the end of this time together, that we tread slowly and that we tread softly and humbly and we do our best to look like Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, a, um, a case study in scripture that I would like to highlight here as a point is the story in Matthew chapter 16 between Jesus and the disciples and Peter. And to re-emphasize this point of we are all capable of partnering with evil. So in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is with the disciples and Jesus asks them this question that we are all familiar with. Who do men say that I am? And Peter responds in very Peter-like form, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, boom. It's either an A or it's an F. There is no in-between for Peter, right? So Peter responds and fortunately for him, he gets an A. And Jesus responds by saying, surely this has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. So I want, to, I want you to get the picture here. Peter has just received maybe the most important moment of revelation in the history of humanity. That the people of Israel had been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah, and he had been walking among them for some 30-odd years, and most of the people of Israel still did not recognize him. But here is this moment where Peter's heart and his spirit are open to receiving, and he does receive this divine revelation from the Father. Boom. This is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what is so interesting and definitely on purpose, is that the very next passage in Scripture is where Jesus is telling the disciples what is about to happen to him. He's talking to them about his fate. And um, Peter says, let me read this quote, Lord, never, this shall never happen to you. This is where Peter gets the F, <laughs> right? He got the A, and now he gets the F. Because what the Lord was saying is exactly what ended up happening to him. But what's more important is that Jesus says to Peter, or looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. How can we reconcile these two stories back to back involving the exact same group of people where Peter receives perhaps the most important divine revelation of all of history and the very next moment is in collusion with the enemy? How does that happen? Let that be a lesson to each and every one of us. That just because we operate in our gifts, we are capable of doing amazing good, and we are also capable of wreaking havoc on those very same people that we are trying to bring healing to. This is part of what it is to be human. We are human. We are frail, we are broken, and we are in a process of becoming whole and looking like Jesus. But as you all know, we are capable of doing evil. So as believers, what are we to do with evil? At the risk of being overly simplistic, I have come up with a two-word phrase that I believe sums up with probably way oversimplified here, but this phrase, expose and oppose, is what I believe 
that we are to do as responsible kingdom citizens on the earth. Expose and oppose. Church, say it with me. Expose and oppose. You're going to leave here, and that's all you're going to be able to think about, and that is my goal. Expose. So the first thing, to be delivered from evil may not mean that we are rescued from its effects or repercussions, but rather that we are able to see it, to recognize it, to name it, and to oppose it. This is the summation of this whole message, that we may not, sometimes when we pray, deliver us from evil, the Lord doesn't just yank us out of situations. Matter of fact, in John 17, Jesus says, when he's praying to the Father, he says, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but I pray that you would protect them from the evil one, right? Jesus also says, in this world, you will have pain, suffering, persecution, fill in the blank. His intention is not at this point to deliver us from all evil ultimately. We are praying for that ultimately, but most of the time in our, in our situations, that is not what happens. Most of the time we are called to a standard of seeing, recognizing, naming, and opposing evil. And that is how we will be faithful. So to expose, we must pray. The name of the series is called Teach Us to Pray. Teach Us to Pray. We must pray because evil does all that it can to keep from being identified. 2 Corinthians 11 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Evil thrives on disguise and deceit. Disguise and deceit. And church, we have to understand this because far too often do we not realize that just like Peter, we have received something, whether directly from the Lord, from the body, or from scripture, and we immediately can't help but interpreting through our current lens, which just so happens to be broken. Our lens, we don't see rightly, which is why we pray. We pray, Lord, help us to see so that we might be able to expose the works of the enemy because he is operating and masquerading as an angel of light. And we know from scripture that he is exactly, precisely the opposite, right? That the nature of evil is to oppose the good fullness of life that God has designed for us. Sidron <clears throat> uh, last week touched on the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness and uh, did a great job of highlighting some things. And I want to just come at this from a slightly different angle and we always, when we look at the life of Christ in scripture and we try and extract principles for ourselves, we always are at risk of flattening the text and flattening and saying, this is why Jesus did it. And boom, one, two, three, and having exactly why. Because the nature of Jesus is he is operating as the Messiah. He is the representation for Israel and he is one of us. So everything Jesus does is so packed full of meaning 
that sometimes I think we oversimplify when we read what Jesus does. And at the risk of that, I still want to try and pull out some things that I believe are principles for how we can learn to recognize temptation. Okay? So essentially there are three temptations that the enemy tempts Jesus with. So Pate, if you can, just give me a few minutes, pay close attention and track with me because this is maybe going to be a little complicated. I don't know. The first one is he tempts Jesus to turn stones to bread. The second one, depending on which version you read, two and three are flipped. The second one is he tells Jesus to throw himself down from the temple and have himself be caught by uh, angels to reveal his messiahship, essentially is what that is about. And the third one is he asks Jesus to worship him, to bow down and worship him, and promising that he will give him all of the kingdoms of the earth in return, right? So we have the, the, the bread, turning the stones to bread, jumping down from the temple, and uh, worshiping Satan in order to, as a transaction for the kingdoms of the earth. And at, on the surface, these may seem out there, very arbitrary, like, why in the world would he tempt Jesus to go up to the top of the temple and to jump down? And that's where I'd like us to, to shed some light here. So the turning of the stones to bread, what's interesting about this is the act in and of itself really doesn't seem that evil, right? Why would Jesus, who in just a few chapters is going to take bread and multiply it to feed the masses, why is it such a big deal if he turns the stones to bread out there in the wilderness. It's such a big deal because the temptation is to shortcut the process and cut off his dependence on the Father. The point of what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is essentially to say, I, Jesus tells us many, many times, I only do what I see the Father doing. He's trying to get Jesus to turn stones to bread to provide for himself, to provide for himself. He's trying to get Jesus to use his power for his own advantage, to use his authority to his own advantage. The second one, to throw himself down from the temple, is like I mentioned a moment ago, he's tempting Jesus to reveal his messiahship to reveal that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah in a grand way. He's like, Jesus, why don't you just go up to the top of the temple, jump off, be caught by angels, then the whole people of Israel will know that you are the Messiah. Once again, a shortcutting of the process, a shortcutting of, I only do what I see my father doing. And there, there is a trend here where Satan is tempting with things that will actually end up happening. But he wants Jesus to do them apart from God. Now you may be saying, well, Jesus didn't actually turn stones into bread and he didn't actually jump off of the temple. But what did Jesus do? Jesus allows himself to become the bread, to be blessed, broken, and given for all mankind in God's timing. He also is essentially lifted up above the city on a cross, and that is where his messiahship is revealed. And where we even see Roman guards going, wow, surely this was the son of God. The third one, where he tempts Jesus to worship him, he is asking Jesus to skip the process of becoming king. 
Skip the process, make a bargain with me, use power, use what is available to you for your own advantage. This is a massive temptation for those of us who have much available to us. One of the great temptations of the enemy is to get us to use what is available to us to do evil so that eventual good may come out of it. This is the philosophy of the end justifies the means. This is as old as it gets. But this is an enormous tactic of the enemy. And that is what he is tempting Jesus here in all three ways. Do evil, partner with me, do what I'm asking you to do so that good may come. This is why we must pray for evil to be exposed in our midst. Because oftentimes we see the good at the end. We see what the enemy is promising. And we see that it looks like good. We see that it looks like the fullness of life that God wants for us. The problem is the enemy wants us to have the fullness of life apart from God. Right? But God wants us to have the fullness of life which can only be found in him. All right, I'm going to take a drink, y'all. All right, the complicated part is over. You made it. Satan wants us to do God's work without God, and that is the great compromise. He wants us to do good things apart from the one who defines good. This is a massive temptation. Evil is sneaky and often subtle. And this is why we pray, deliver us from evil, because we cannot expose it on our own. We need eyes to see, which is why we pray. We pray for discernment. <clears throat> Stanley Hauerwas, a, a theologian that uh, worked at Duke Divinity School, says, you are up against what we call the principalities and powers. And the powers never appear to be evil or coercive. The powers always masquerade as freedoms that we have been graciously given or as necessities that we cannot live without. He appeals to our sinful nature, our bend towards sinfulness to want to have the fullness of life which God wants for us apart from God. He wants us and, and petitions us and lures us to create life for ourselves. He appeals to our desire to be independent. And I talked about that in the, uh, the give us this day message about how part of what the struggle was for the children of Israel wasn't that they loved being oppressed. It was that they loved the security of food being on the table. They didn't have to depend on a God that they couldn't see to provide food out of the sky. Because what if he stops? We don't like being dependent on God or on each other. And I've got news for you. We are dependent on God, whether we recognize it or not, and we're being saved together. <laughs> Look at the person next to you. It's likely that you will see them for all eternity. You better get to like them. Yeah. <clears throat> Evil is constantly changing shape and form inhabiting the powers and the principalities that avail themselves to evil. And as we saw in Peter's case, much evil is done without evil intent, okay? There is this, uh, this thing that I heard a lot growing up, you know, youth camp, whatever. Um, 
kids say it a lot. Well, they may not use this word, but it's the, the implication that my intentions are good. My heart is good. Um, I don't know how to say this other than a lot of times it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, uh, it does matter that your heart, I don't, I don't mean to say that your heart is not good. It does matter that your heart is good. But when we partner with evil, it doesn't matter that our heart and our intentions were good. Oftentimes, we are deceived by our good intentions into partnering with evil because we see the ultimate good. Remember, Satan appeals to us to do evil, to shortcut the process, to cut off our dependence with the end being eventual good. And this is just not good enough. This is not the kingdom way. This is one of the reasons why when Jesus heals people, many times we see him say, go and don't tell people. Because Jesus realized that timing and the process matters. That it's not just about doing good. It's about doing good and following the Father. Following the way that the Father was leading him. And Jesus in those moments realized the time is not yet. The time is not yet. It's not that he didn't want people to know that he was the Messiah. It's that the time was not yet. The time had not come. That is important. So how do we learn to see evil? I have a couple of ways here. One is prayer, as we've already talked about. Continual submission to God. Humbly seeking out his will and his ways. And I think it's important that we recognize that just knowing the will of God, what God desires, is not always enough. That sometimes we need to know the will of God and the ways of God. It's not good enough to just know that God wants to do X, Y, Z through my life. Because if so, our tendency is to do whatever is within our power to make that happen. It's important that we pray for the will of God and the ways of God. God, I want to participate with your will in your way. I don't want to jump the gun. I don't want to be, and Pastor Dan or Pastor Jade earlier said this, presumptuous. Or some, someone up here praying said, let's not be a people who are presumptuous. That because we've read the end of the story, we know how it's all going to happen. And that we know what our role is. Let's be humble. Let's pray. Let's say, Lord, I, I recognize that I cannot always see properly, that I don't see everything as it is. Corinthians says that now we see through a glass dimly or darkly. And even if the thing we're looking at, we can correctly identify, we're seeing through a lens that is skewed. And we have to recognize that as the people of God. Amen? Number two, how do we learn to see evil? Worship. The process of worship is a process of fixing our eyes on God. When we fix our eyes on God, we are being trained in non-conformity to the patterns and the ways of the world. That worship is more, and we're going to talk about this in just a couple of weeks here, so I'm not going to go too deep into the subject of worship. But worship is more than just an expression of our hearts to God. It is that. It is more than that. When we worship, we are training our eyes to look at the one who created us, who has redeemed us, who loves us unconditionally. And as we look at him, 
we are training ourselves in non-conformity to the patterns of the world. Our eyes learn to recognize evil as we look at Christ, right? As we see him rightly for who he is, we then begin to recognize all that does not line up with him. Thank you. As we look toward God, we are trained to identify what is not like him, and we are empowered to bring healing to it, not be contaminated by it. This is why being here on Sunday mornings is really important. And there's no condemnation in missing a week if you have to. But over time, we are conditioned because we live in a world with patterns that are not patterned after the kingdom of God. We must come back to the place with people who are like-minded and like-hearted and come and submit ourselves before a God who wants to train us and form us and teach us what to look for, teach us how to oppose and how to expose. This is all happening here in our midst right now on Sunday mornings, whether we recognize it or not. <clears throat> God is delivering us through the long process of peeling the scales from our eyes to see the works of the enemy. This requires openness to the possibility that we might have been wrong a time or two, maybe not more than twice, but a time or two, each of us are wrong. This requires humility, humility. We pray and we become more like him. We are humbled, which is the next verse I have is James four, six and seven says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's not coincidental that humility is tied to resisting the devil. Because when we are arrogant, we don't see the masquerade. We don't see the masquerade. We only see the angel of light. Humility is what it costs and requires to be able to see past the angel of light to see the masquerade. So the next part of this message, expose and oppose. So we are called to expose the works of the enemy and we are called to oppose. And I'd just like to once again point out that this is not an exhaustive way to oppose the enemy but I believe that there are some core principles here um, that will help us know what to do when we see evil. Ephesians chapter 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Opposition oftentimes looks like standing. Oftentimes it looks like standing. It's not limited to standing, but more times than we like to acknowledge, it looks like making a decision and choosing to stand. To, to stand on our, th this is what it means to live by faith, right? To live by faith is not to believe constantly that good things are going to happen to me. To live by faith means that I can look in the face of whatever happens to me and trust that God is not done working. As I said at the beginning, God is not done all he can do yet. 
God is not done working. And one day, as Pastor Jade said earlier, we will be alive with him as new creations ruling and reigning with Jesus. That's what it is to live by faith. It's to stand in the face of opposition and look right at it and say, I see you and I know the one that has defeated you. And even though in this moment, it doesn't look like you're defeated, there is coming a day when you will no longer exist, my friend. Don't actually call it your friend, but you know. Resistance looks like naming, standing, worshiping, interceding, forgiving, peacemaking, loving our enemies. Perfect resistance looks like following the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus. There is this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2 that I think got added just a couple of years ago because I've been reading the Bible since I was a kid and I never saw this verse before. Let me read this to you. It says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's the verse that I think got added. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The key phrase I'd like to hone in on is leaving you an example And there is this phrase that gets tossed around a lot in evangelical Christianity. And that is, Jesus died for your sins. And I'm not saying that that's not true. It is absolutely true. 100% true. But what is also true is that Jesus died to show us how to. Right? Jesus died for you. And Jesus also died to show us how to. Jesus says carry your cross, right? Pick up your cross. There is this idea that because Jesus has died for our sins, that everything is now good. Ultimately, everything is good, but there is a death required of each and every one of us, and not just a death, a daily death. And Jesus, through dying on the cross, does something that we could never do for ourselves, and additionally, shows us how we are to die to ourselves. And Jesus defeated death on the cross. He shows us how to defeat evil by the cross. Let me explain here. We sing this song, Cornerstone. We sang this today. And what we tend to think of Cornerstone is the Cornerstone is at the bottom of the building and everything gets built up around this. It's a little more complicated though. In old society, especially in Bible times, the cornerstone was they would find the most perfect 90 degree angle edge on the rock of the cornerstone. And what the cornerstone would do is it provided a guide for the rest of the streets in the city to be built off of. The cornerstone is much more than just a load bearing stone, it's a guide. 
it, it sets the edge. It projects the trajectory for the rest of the roads in the city because of its 90 degree edge, which was much harder to find back 2000 years ago than it is today where we can make 90 degree edges like that. When we sing about Jesus being the cornerstone, we're saying, Jesus, would you align everything in my life according to the way that you lived, according to your example, according to the way that you see things, according to to the way that you operate in the midst of opposition and in the face of evil. It's much more than Jesus died so that now, now I can oppose evil however I want. Jesus provides us an example of the cross. So let's dive into this for just a couple of minutes here. Uh, Hebrews 2 says, 2, 14 and 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. 1 John 3, 8, this is one of my favorite verses, says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I love that. I love that. That is so good. On the cross, Jesus disarms and exhausts the power of death and evil. So what exactly does that mean? Jesus dying on the cross is not just some mechanical hoop that the Father said, now Jesus, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z, and you're just going to have to jump through these hoops, and then I'll just deal with, with evil after that. Jesus dying on the cross was the pinnacle of evil doing all that it could, political evil, social evil, religious evil, yes, that does exist, doing all that it could to persecute Jesus, which leads him to the cross, where Jesus receives unjustly the sins of all humanity into his being and does not breathe out vengeance or retaliation or more violence. He breathes out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus deals with evil by allowing evil to do all that it can do. It killed him. Evil did all that it could do to Jesus. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And three days later is resurrected a new creation. This is what it looks like to de-ar- to, uh, what did I say? To disarm, thank you, to disarm and exhaust the power of evil. And so often, I'm afraid that we try and oppose evil with evil. We try and oppose evil with the lesser of evil. Or we try and justify using evil to bring about good. But Jesus says, do not fight evil with evil, but uh, fight evil with good, right? Some, somewhere around that verse, that's kind of what it says, right? <clears throat> We don't fight evil on its own terms. We counteract evil with the law of love. Jesus says to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, to love and to give to those who persecute us. Now, I'm not proposing a do-nothing mentality when, when the oppressed and those who are weaker than us are being overcome with evil. We continue to pray. We stand with them. 
But what we have to be careful not to do is to buy into the lie and to fight evil on its own terms. This is the great danger for us. We're to pray for our enemies, stand up for the oppressed, forgive those who wrong us, show mercy to those who deserve punishment, give to those in need, and stand up for those around us who are helpless. This is the way that Jesus interacts with evil. Spiritual warfare is often the constant battle to maintain the cross shape in a world that is pushing a very different pattern on us. A world that is trying to squeeze us into a different sort of mold. Spiritual warfare, yes, there are times for exorcism and there are things which many of you are much more educated than I am in the realm of spiritual warfare. But the most frequent type of spiritual warfare, I am convinced, is the battle within each and every one of us to continue to look like Jesus. This is how we oppose. In the face of evil, we pray. We stand. We expose. We say that is wrong. That is evil. This is the job of the church. And we oppose on Jesus' terms not on evil's terms, by showing mercy, by showing love, by caring for the oppressed, by showing compassion to those who are hurt around us. To be delivered from evil may not mean that we are rescued from its effects or repercussions, but rather that we are able to see it, recognize it, name it, and stand faithfully opposed to it. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we are asking for eyes to see, for courage to name and to expose evil in the presence of evil and strength to oppose evil by living the cross-shaped life, forgiving those around us who wrong us, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, and worshiping alongside those who are being saved with us. If you would bow your heads, and then I'm going to invite Pastor Jade to come lead us to the Lord's table. Lord, I pray for clarity that your words would sink deep into the hearts of your people and that my words would be swept away. And I also, in this moment, pray against the work of the enemy who comes to steal the seeds of truth before they can take root. I pray that he, when he comes, would be exposed clearly as the enemy, that the angel of light who is masquerading, that the masquerade mask would be pulled off. Give us eyes to see. And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us as your people to stand in opposition to the evil that we see around us, to not shiver in fear, to not shrink back, and to also not attempt to fight evil on its own terms. But I pray that you would help us to look like Jesus and to follow his ways no matter the cost. In Jesus' name.